We have been singing about God's grace, which we have seen manifest and displayed in vivid technicolor on the pages of Scripture lived out by these characters. We desire to get a closer, more biblical, biblically accurate picture of God as He reveals Himself. And to speak in terms in which your bulletin front puts it in uh, this excerpt from uh, David Wells' book, God, Our Vision, Culture, Our Context, that the closer our understanding is of how, who God is as He reveals Himself on the pages of Scripture, the more effectiveness we will have in the culture around us. That God, by His providential design, has intended you to have in our various spheres of influence. What an amazing portrait of grace we have been studying in the book of Ruth. This grandest of all love stories. A story of redeeming love. We have seen God in in great detail His providential hand working behind the scenes as His faithful servants honored and obeyed Him and stepped out in faith. Each of us have a story that God is writing similar or in parallel fashion to Ruth. We experience in life God-sized tasks that if God does not intervene, there is no hope. There is no chance of overcoming. And you could fill in so many examples from your own story of what God is, is writing. I think of so many ways in which when you are faithful to recognize God's providential finger in your life and to pay all the tribute and the accolades and the glory to Him. You know, I, I think of some of the stories recently that my, my family and I have gone through where God has just orchestrated and, uh, you know, with, with the, uh, uh, an inheritance provided by a loving grandmother to purchase a home and to remodel it. And I think of my extended family that we'll be with uh, up in Maine. Uh, you know, if my sister were to step up here and share her story, I, I, I remember so vividly when they'd done everything humanly possible, gone to all the doctor, the fertility doctors and everything, and there's nothing you guys can do. You cannot have children. And due to all the um, medical professional advice that were given them, they uh, proceeded with an adoption, a very expensive adoption, uh, that again God had to provide for. And they had no longer... That no longer made everything official, but she's pregnant. She gets pregnant, and not only has one child, but two children. And you know, you can just think as you look at your life at what God is doing. That as He works everything together for good, for our good and for His glory, as we proceed in in faith and obedience, that the ending of our story could be written in a similar vein as we look at Ruth chapter 4 this morning as they lived happily forever after. Or to put it in a different terms, all's well that ends well. If God's writing the story, that's how it will end. We've looked at the resolve of a pagan woman, a Moabitess that stepped out and 
and uh, with her mother-in-law went to a foreign land, forsaken culture and communication and her false gods and says, your, your home, my home. Your God, my God. And she res- resolved to follow her till death. And that's what we were met with in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we were met with the right. She was given the right by a kind, wealthy man by the name of Boaz to glean in his field to provide for her and her mother-in-law. So she resolved to follow Naomi's God. She was given rights to glean in the field. Last week, we were met in chapter 3 with the, this interesting request where she goes to the threshing floor and proposes marriage to Boaz and everything culminates. It all comes to fruition with the reward of chapter 4. Reward of a husband, verses 1 through 12. Reward of a son, in verses 13 through 17, this young man by the name of Obed. And then it concludes in this genealogy, this, linea- this godly lineage, verses 18 through 22. So let me invite you again, if you haven't turned to Ruth already, to follow the remaining scenes as the story of redeeming love comes to culmination, giving security and reward for faithfulness, and even answering the many prayers for blessing that we have been uh, interacting with. Would you follow along as I read from Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1? In this final scene, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down too. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here, and before the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. In other words, I'm second in line, if you don't. He said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removing, removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Moreover, I have required Ruth the Moabitess the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. 
All the people who were in the court, the elders said, were witness. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon, and Nashon Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed. To Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. In just 22 short verses, Ruth moves from widowhood and poverty to marriage and wealth Unless you think I'm reading into the text, remember back in chapter 2 that uh, we found out Boaz is a rich man. Uh, He's a strong man to the town. As Boaz brings this Moabite woman into his family, into the family line of David, and eventually the line, the lineage of Jesus Christ. So God blesses her abundantly with a new husband, a son, and privileged position in the lineage of Christ. What lavish, abundant, overflowing grace. So as we transition, scene one, we've got a potential wrong ending averted. Is this mystery relative going to marry her, or is he going to pass her up? A potential wrong ending averted in uh, verses 1 through 2. Scene 2, we've got a marriage, a birth, and a doting grandma, verses 13 through 17. And then this little epilogue. Unless we skip over that, in this genealogy, we've got the official record of God's blessing in inspired Scripture, driven down in the bedrock of God's truth so that we remember it. That it's from the hand of God. So would you notice first of all with me in verses 1 through 12, the redemption of Ruth. We have mentioned how that Ruth is a picture, this book is a picture of redemption. Redemption, deliverance from bondage and difficulty. And as Boaz redeems her, he pictures the coming one, the ultimate redeemer, who would not just take care of difficulty. He would take care of man's worst difficulty. He would redeem man from the slave market of sin. So Boaz takes center stage as God's instrument of deliverance. And the Hebrew actually draws attention in this invitation. 
when, uh, you know, what our English language just says, now Boaz, just carrying on in the story, now Boaz did this. But uh, uh, it's Vahine, and look, notice this guy, don't miss it. Shining the spotlight on him and not the mystery relative. We don't know who the mystery relative was. He's never named. Uh, it's intentional. This is John Doe or Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so, mystery relative, becomes the foil in the story, the uh, opposite of Boaz, because Boaz is in the spotlight. You passed up? We won't make note of you. It's a man of anonymity, an unimportant character in the story. So, so the spotlight is shining on Boaz, the one that steps up to the plate, who goes up to the gate, I should say, because that's what the text says. He went up to the gate. And to remind you, this is the place where personal business and all the civic affairs of, of the people were transacted to help get your foot in their sandal. This is an agrarian culture. It's not like ours today. Uh, you'd go up to the city gate. Uh, now, the tension in the story last week in chapter 3, to remind you, and if you missed last week, it's on, on the website to, to get caught up on the story. Ruth went to the threshing floor. Boaz had been working hard threshing grain, and he sleeps there to protect the harvest from uh, any uh, would-be thieves. And uh, uh, he says, I don't know if it's going to be me. Ruth, you're going to be married, but there is a guy that's a closer relative uh, than I am, so he's got rights to the marriage. And so that tension was left unresolved last week. Let me remind you of uh, what we've talked about in this book. The book of Ruth is the, the uh, most extensive Old Testament witness for the law of Leverite marriage. We read from Deuteronomy 25, verses uh, 5 through 10. Four basic situations could come along in life in which there was uh, redemption. Number one, it was used in... Uh, Pentateuch uh, legislation for the repurchasing of a field which was sold in a time of need. If you had uh, money needs, then sell some land. Number two, redemption of property or a non-sacrificial animal that's been dedicated to the Lord. Uh, you could give an equivalent to the Lord in exchange for what had already been allocated for Him. Third would be the avenger of blood if uh, there was a murdered man. But finally, and very common usage is what's prominent in the Psalms and in the prophets, that God is Israel's Redeemer, who will stand up for His people, who will vindicate them. And as we even read about in, in Amos and, and Ezra, that uh, even when God's People are scattered from disobedience and in captivity. He's faithful to keep a remnant and to take care of them. So we've got a Leverite marriage that takes place in the book of Ruth. A family and an inheritance custom among the Jewish people in which your relative, your nearest kin, could marry your widow if you died. 
if there was no heir. Just to carry on the family name. Leverite literally means husband's brother. And, uh, you know, I'll leave it to your sanctified speculation, uh, gal, about what it would be like if your husband died, if uh, your brother-in-law took you in. I know that's not the, the, might not be the best picture in, in your mind, but it was a great picture in Old Testament Israel. A widow was not to marry a stranger. So the, the firstborn son that uh, this new marriage would produce would be named after the deceased brother. Such a marriage is not required. You could pass up on the deal. We, we read in Deuteronomy 25 that if, uh, you know, say you're a gal and your, your husband dies and uh, you propose marriage to former brother-in-law and he says, I don't want in on this. What were you to do? You take off your, your sandal and hand it and uh, spit in his face and uh, he'd be known as the guy that turned the best gal in town down. Well, that's essentially part of what goes on here in the end of the story. The, the law didn't require it, but it was considered an act of love. If the brother marries, if the brother marries his deceased brother's wife, It'd be an act of love. He's not forced to do so, but the next male relative then had the right if you turned it down. The first mention of the concept is back in Genesis 38. You might recall the uh, character Onan, who was called on to marry Ur's wife in uh, Genesis 38.8, but he refused to, quote, give offspring to his brother. He didn't want to raise up a seed to his brother's name to perpetuate his brother's family name. Such a practice is what the Sadducees appealed to in Matthew 22 when they're trying to stump Jesus and they say, all right, Jesus, suppose one of us guys dies and leaves a wife and uh, my brother marries my wife. In the resurrection, whose wife is she? Her first husband, me, or my brother that marries her when I died? Trying to stump him. And so Jesus uses it as a teaching time that resurrection life is different characterization than what you're even posing here, so it doesn't qualify. He, he basically says, uh, uh, people have told you there's no stupid question, well, you ask the stupid question, I'm not going to answer it. So. Uh, but anyways, back to the text. Boaz goes up to the city gate. Tension last week in chapter 3 was left unmet. Is this closer relative going to marry Ruth? Due to custom. Boaz says, I will defer because you've got a, a, a closer kin than me. Up till now, it had been a private conversation going on involving only Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. They were the only ones privy to what's going on. But now, it would receive public settlement up at the city gate. What takes place here is formal it is a legal process told in the language of legal discourse. It's more administrative, not, not a criminal trial taking place. But what was family matter is, is now worked out in society. Especially as, how was how Ruth known? She came to town, she came to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, and she's known as Ruth, the Moabite, 
the Moabitess. That would be muttered under breath. To, you know, she's the gal who, who's the foreigner, the, or the worshiper of Chemosh, the false god. Uh, and so it's really important to the story that this take place publicly as she is brought into the family and into this new identity as a servant and follower of Yahweh as this pagan woman became a full-fledged part of Israel, no longer known as a Moabitess. So it's public affair. Boaz is in town. He goes to the city gates. He summons ten elders. We don't know why ten. In, uh, in the Old Testament, we find that if you're looking for witnesses to seal the deal, you're only required two or three people to make it official in judicial proceedings. But he called for ten. Centuries later, that would become a number needed for Jewish marriage benediction or a quorum in a synagogue meeting. But notice that this, uh, the, even the seed of, we, we, we have elders here at Newtown Bible Church, and lest anybody that comes from various churches think that eldership is a, is a new concoction in contemporary life of the church, uh, this is what we read about. The seed of New Testament eldership is found on Old Testament foundations. The city elders comprise the ruling body that governed the affairs in a local community, even the community of Bethlehem, which is a place that our story takes place. There were even pre-settlement tribal elders, the collective heads of families which governed Israel. Back in uh, Exodus chapter 4 and verse number 29, we are told that Moses and Aaron assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel, representative Heads of families to represent them. Deuteronomy 31, uh, this has taken place as well. When the elders are assembled, when Moses, under the auspices of God Himself, is confronting the people and charging the people with covenant disobedience, the heads of families, the elders were called in to substantiate the case. The Old Testament particularly treasured the wisdom of elders. We find it all throughout, uh, whether we be in 1 Kings or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. They, they appreciate wisdom, probably in, in common sense way, they, they were the ones in the know. They'd know legal pr procedure and precedence. Uh, the, the elders were basically your Robert's rule of orders guys before it was ever written. They'd know the legal proceedings and what should be done. They'd know precedents of cases that had taken place in the town in years past. Their authority extended to murder trials, disputes over virginity, asylum, and even a Leverite marriage. And in this case, they were called upon in this account to ratify the settlement of family redemption rights. Boaz told Ruth on the night at the threshing floor when she proposed marriage, before the end of the day, you'll know the answer. You're going to be married. You're going to be taken care of. You're going to be protected and provided for. But we've got to work out this wrinkle in the plan that there's a closer relative than me, the unnamed Mr. So-and-so. So, note again, Boaz went up to the gate he sat down there, and behold, stop for a moment in the story. 
A close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by just in the nick of time. So he turned aside. Friends said, you know, this same guy that Boaz was just talking with Ruth about, he's here. Unless you think, well, what a quinky dink in the story that the, the right guy shows up at the right time. We'd already talked about God's providence and God's chance when Ruth was going to the fields to glean and she just so happened to come across Boaz's field and right when she came across his field he came along and said harvest harvest plentifully and he told his harvest boys make sure you drop extra for her this is a grand story of God's providential care for his own and so Mr. So-and-so by chance the nearer relative came along So amidst all the buzz and the chattering citizens who are headed out the gate to work that day, Boaz sits down. And just then, Mr. So-and-so comes along. Notice the finger of providence. Providential choice guiding this quote-unquote chance encounter with the guy Boaz had mentioned back in chapter 3 and verse 12. He had the first property rights But according to verse 6, declined. We're told that uh, the closest relative, whatever his name was, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. So basically, shoe off. Sandal off. Taking the sandal off was a dramatic, symbolic act that others... The, the, the others witness and remember. Well, you, you take your sandal off, people that are starting to snooze and nod their heads in town at the city gate, they're, they're taking notice. This is an official act. This is meant to make a, a statement. To seal the deal when he hands his sandal to Boaz. You got rights to the property. You remember reading and Deuteronomy and Joshua. God took His people, Israel, out of bondage. He redeemed them from Egypt land. They disobeyed. They doubted. He took them around the desert for 40 years. Their sandals never wore out. And He promised them a land. And He took them to the land. And what was His promise? He says that every place that your foot treads, it'll be yours. Yours for the taking. This is what I am promising in this promise. So, taking off a sandal became a very appropriate custom as God promised the land on which their feet trod would be theirs. An accurate symbol. And with this, the anonymous relative passes off the scene into oblivion. While just the name Boaz is what lives on in infamy. You ever sit around in church fellowships or home Bible study and uh, you're drinking tea or coffee and talk about Mr. So-and-so who passed up Ruth? No. But boy, somebody mentions the name Boaz, your ears perk up with identity. You've read about him. 
Just as verse 14 would later end up saying, when, when, the, when the ladies of the town of Bethlehem say to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who's not left you without a Redeemer today, may His name become famous in Israel. It did become famous. So we've got the redemption of Ruth, which the whole storyline was driving at. Three chapters worth. We move quickly to the reward of the Son, verses 13 to 17. The reward theme is the dominant theme in this final chapter, the final scene before the epilogue. This is the answer finally that has been waited for as the story is told. The pronouncement of blessing by the witnesses back in verses, uh, uh, look at verses uh, 11 and 12. We're told that all the people who were in the court, as they're abuzz with activity, they're, they're all gathering for, for, for meeting, for uh, conducting uh, uh, work. Those who were there in the court and the elders said, we're witness, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, might your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Mr. So-and-so passes up the deal. Boaz accepts. He says, I want to marry you. I want to raise up a seed. And there's great reward, not only for Ruth, who had launched out in faith and obedience, but for Boaz. Let her bear children. An ultimate Old Testament picture of God's blessing. One that man can't produce, but just trust God for. You look at these ladies that uh, when, when, when the people of the city are pronouncing blessing upon this marriage and say, might you be like Rachel and Leah? Now, the, those who produced eight sons for Israel. Eight sons. And as they pronounce blessing, the narrator goes back to the storyline with the activity in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. God gave her conception. When God planted man and established the covenant of marriage, and He says, be fruitful, and what? Be fruitful and fill the earth. He made this joyful endeavor between a man and his woman for a lifetime, and yet still relying on God whether he chooses to keep the womb closed or chooses to open it. Through children produced by Ruth, Boaz attained greater wealth than he ever had. Chapter 2 told us this is a wealthy man. He had the world by a tail. He had it all. He didn't have Ruth. And that's what's pictured here. That he was richer than he ever knew he was in the first place. She is how God brought him 
prosperity and wealth and prestige and security. Take a peek at how Scripture unfolds family and children as, a, as an example, a picture of God's blessing. Look with me at Psalm 127 for just a moment. I remember when I was a youth pastor was when it first really occurred to me. My wife and I had no children, and yet we still had to shop for just the two of us. And we'd go to the store, and these things that people called children would be screaming up and down the aisles, and they didn't get the Fruity Pebbles or whatever else wasn't on the list, and they'd have a temper tantrum. And then mom, if she chose not to give way, would let the kid go outside and carry his uh, fit and rage out. Uh, that is, of course, after dismissing him or her with a, uh, a tongue lash and screaming. And so often, is it not in our society that people tend to look at family or children as a burden and not a blessing? A liability, not an asset. Not a source of security, which is, if God is the architect of the home and marriage and the family, Psalm 127 really fleshes this out. This is one of the songs of ascent. As the people of God, Old Testament worshipers, were going up to the temple to worship and sing this song, here's what they would fill their lips. Verse 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. Not causing grief, but a gift. A gift of the Lord. That doesn't mean you've got to have seven or a dozen or however many we've got. They're a gift. Fruit of the womb's a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. The picture being there, you raise up godly children to the praise of God's great name, and He shoots those arrows to infiltrate society to accomplish His kingdom purposes. Raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as Paul teaches Timothy. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. You know, when people count the kids in our, uh, our 15-passenger van, we just, we, before we had tinted windows, we just had to nod at stoplights because people are counting them. It's like they're wondering, are they all, are they all, all yours? Like, yeah, my quiver's full and somebody else's quiver. I haven't found out who else has the rest of the quiver. I'd give it back. But, but what a picture of blessing that is used all throughout Old Testament Scripture. You got somebody to carry on your seed, to take care of you in older years, which we'll look at in just a moment. The next psalm, they're singing another chorus to the same tune. In Psalm 128, verse 3, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table, growing shoots out from everywhere. Going back to Ruth, Don't miss God's kind hand of providence when we are told here that God gave, the Lord gave her conception. God enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. God gave this. Conception is something she never, didn't receive for 10 years. She was married to Malon back in Moab. 
The text tells us they were there for about 10 years. No kids. No offspring. Nobody to perpetuate the family name. But God graciously grants if He sees fit. Sometimes keeping the womb closed. Sometimes opening it. Trace that theme through the book of Genesis sometime. Where you've got some gals wrestling with each other. Jealous with each other. Rivalry between Leah and Rachel. It's unnecessary. It's false worship. You've got some people who worship their jobs to the expense of no family and no kids and some others on the other extreme that worship their kids instead of their God who gave them their kids. And we see that in the story of Lee and Rachel. God opened her womb. He didn't open my womb. Boo! Is her story. Kids aren't the center of our world. God is. He alone opens or closes the womb. Though man and woman are involved, they are the means to God's end. They are not a product of human effort alone. But responsible faithfulness, God God blesses here in the story. It's emphasized all throughout this book. Don't miss this reference to divine intervention. So much is on the surface of Ruth talking about she did this and he did that. They were faithfully obedient to God. Yes, that's an important theological theme of Scripture. But they weren't writing their own story. God was writing the script. And so much of this culmination in chapter 4 of blessing and reward for faithfulness and prayer. Prayer being another means to God's intended end. Naomi prayed back in chapter 1 in verses 8 and 9 that Ruth would find marital security in the home of her new husband. That prayer, though it took a few chapters, a little bit of time, was answered. Naomi's prayer. In a similar vein, Boaz more generally blesses Ruth in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Ruth, you passed up the young bucks, the young men, and you're, you want to settle down. You're proposing marriage to the old guy. What a blessing you have brought into my life, he says. So he pronounces blessing. And this marriage is the fruition of that prayer. So Naomi prays that Ruth would find marital security. Boaz prays blessing upon her. How about Naomi's blessing upon Boaz? In chapter 2, after Ruth has been harvesting all day long, she, she pulls up her skirt. She's got all this grain that she brings back home to mother-in-law. Look, not only at what I was able to glean, but look at the extra grain from Boaz's table, her little goodie bag. He's been so kind. He's been so gracious. And so Naomi pr- pronounces blessing on that guy that she hadn't met yet. That finally comes to culmination. A fourth way in which God brings this blessing, this reward for faithfulness is in regards to this blessing I had already read uh, for the people at the gate. The whole crowd, the court and the elders. As they pronounce blessing on this newlywed couple, 
that the Lord enabled Ruth to have a baby. What they name? They, uh, verse seventeen tells us his name's Obed. He will be uh, a restorer, according to verse fifteen, a sustainer of your old age, Naomi, by your daughter-in-law. A restorer, a nurturer. Notice how the, the text tells us that this baby that was born to Ruth wasn't born to Ruth, it was born to Naomi. What are we to make of that? Though she, he was physically born to Ruth, how did the plot begin in the story of Ruth? Naomi is the one who left the house of bread, Bethlehem, full, had a husband, had kids, celebrated that in... Uh, in Moab, God took away her husband, God took away her kids, left her with one daughter-in-law, the other one bailed on her. And all of a sudden, the ladies proclaim, Naomi, when you came back to town, you said you're changing your name from Naomi, pleasant, to Mara, bitter. You said you came back home as a bitter woman because God had dealt bitterly with you. Naomi, you're full. You've got a heritage now. Not only do you have a heritage, He will restore, He will nourish you. So let me remind you as we're studying Scripture that meanings are not just wrapped up in words, though they are. They're wrapped up in a context of the book, an authorial intent and the literary structure. Though he was physically born to Ruth, in a figurative or a spiritual way, he is born to provide for Naomi in her old age. Uh, when, when the writer says that he will be a, a, a nourish, a restorer of life, literally, Gray hairs. A phrase meaning he, he, he'll feed your gray hairs. Naomi, you thought that you were only stalked by famine in the earlier years, but you have sustained bread in your later years. God's been good to you. Don't miss it. Don't miss His finger of providence writing the script of your life, taking care of you. Don't doubt as some of the other gals in the history of Israel had done and are fighting, I don't have a child. God's made me barren. Don't be like Sarah who when she was told would get a child. I'm past childbearing years, but God promised it. God will bring it about. You don't have to seek human means. And not only has God done this, He's done so through faithful, loyal, loving Ruth. Remember when Naomi comes back to town, she tells all the ladies in town, God brought me back with nothing. Oh yeah? Who's that over your shoulder? Isn't that your daughter-in-law that you got over in Moab? Isn't this little Ruth? Naomi said she was empty without husband, without sons, and never mentioned her daughter-in-law there. And the ladies to help instruct her in a high view of God, an accurate view of God. You said God brought bitterness to your life, but He brought bounty to your life. Naomi, don't miss it. 
Don't miss the overflowing. The daughter-in-law who loves you, they say, is better than seven sons. That's huge. The Israelite ideal number of sons is seven, and yes, sons. Those that had beef and brawn and muscle to work the family plot, to take care of the, the needs of the farm. The ancients strongly preferred sons to daughters. So this is this was they were paying the ultimate tribute, especially in this this story that was so consumed in having a son. Naomi, you got a son. God does reward the faithful sometimes in ways that uh, transcend even their lifetimes and exceeds their wildest imagination. We'll end up concluding in the genealogy. But God didn't just bless the time and the age of Naomi. That blessing spilled over throughout history to when the Messiah would be born. Which brings us to that last scene. Verses 18 through 22. The rights of David to the throne of Judah. You might ask the question, what's in a genealogy? I began preaching over 20 years ago, and to my shame, to my chagrin, I used to skip over all these names that were hard to pronounce. To skip over, it's just a list of names. But this is the surprising official record of God's blessing. Perez, who the genealogy begins with here in verse 18, his family line provided the documentation for God's providential care. In this down-home book that we're confronted with, with the normal issues of life, of travels, and marriages, and deaths, and harvesting, and eating, and sleeping, and purchasing land, what's been revealed to us is the guiding activity of a sovereign God. This was the son by Tamar in Genesis 38, verses 12 through 30. The man who, who is the head of the list, the head of the genealogy. And this, this list goes on right down to the very last name in verse 22, David. Whom Boaz and Ruth were great-grandparents of. David, who's in the lineage of Christ through Mary. Matthew accounts for it in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 16. That's an extensive list of names to anybody to be skipping over. When Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 1 and starts unpacking the glory of Christ and the glory of redemption plan, he identifies Christ as God's Son who was born a descendant of David. No, no minor issue here. When Jesus, at the end of the age, addresses His people in Revelation 22.16, He identifies Himself as the root and the offspring of David. He's called the Son of David throughout, script, throughout especially throughout Matthew's Gospel that we're studying on Sunday mornings. He'll someday return to earth to sit on the throne of David as the millennial king. It's unfolded in Revelation 20. You might say, well, there's some names missing. Did God get it wrong? Not at all. Going back to authorial intent, the writer of the book of Ruth has an intention here. 
He's given us a representative genealogy from Perez all the way down to David. And in a concise packaging of word, spans nine centuries, specifically ten generations. Perez to Nashon is the first five, covers the patriarchs down through the Exodus and the wilderness wandering. And Salmon to David covers Joshua's time and the judges to the monarchy. Family record doesn't have, a, have to have a list of every generation. Just provide incontestable succession by prominence. You know, just skip over the top of the, the, the main guys. Let me give you one, one freebie that I'll throw in as we conclude. One grace note of omission is that David's lineage as represented here, notice Ruth's first husband? No, you don't. He's blazingly absent. This is not through the lineage of Elimelech, but Boaz, who by God's grace was brought into the lineage of the Messiah. One commentator put it this way, he says, this genealogy which leads up to David is a visible proof of the abundant and continued blessing of Yahweh. Then he adds later, through the addition of this genealogy, the book acquires an additional level of meaning in that the blessings of Yahweh are shown not to be confined just to a single family, but to extend much further. What he's getting at is, the blessing God gave Naomi is having a son born to her passed way beyond her lifetime to lifetimes to come that you and I are the recipients of through Christ. One other teacher speaks of God's providence being at work in the lives of these very ordinary folks to reward them for steadfastness, for upright living by giving them the most illustrious descendant and in the fuller Christian perspective, an even more illustrious descendant. You know, when, when he concludes with David, David was the greatest of Israel's kings. He was the top of the line. He was celebrated. And yet, David's lineage, his seed, his root, Jesus the Messiah will rule over the entire earth and the kingdom to come on David's throne. So as we've seen God being about His business in the book of Ruth, we should be about His business. He rewards responsible living as, a, as, as fruit of His grace, richly rewards sacrificial love as uh, captured in the character Ruth. This book in a similar vein of some other Old Testament books, shows hesed, shows love. And one who's received love becomes a perpetrator of love. You love God, love others. And in a bleak day and age, the time of the judges, Ruth is a, is a ray of hope. As Ruth, her faithfulness is contrasted with Israel's unfaithfulness. Stark contrast. The people of God had forsaken the covenant. There was immorality. There was idolatry. There was decline. There was lust. There was war. There was cruelty. There was disobedience. There was spiritual darkness bleak throughout the land. And in contrast to the children of God, the people of Israel, 
Through Ruth, we see fidelity, following of the true God, devotion, love, peace, kindness, obedient faith, which brings blessing into life, spiritual light. Ruth stands out against the faithful... uh, against the faithlessness of Israel. I think this, uh, she's a concluding contrast beautifully with the introduction. When we started this story, this inspired account of Scripture, we met Naomi, the widowed, the one whose husband and boys were taken away from her. Found refuge for a time, but now it was a time of famine. Bitterness, bleakness, deep sorrow, which turns at the end of the story to radiant joy. Emptiness gives way to fullness. Naomi, once empty, is now full. Ruth, who was a widow, is now married. But most importantly, the Lord has prepared Christ's line of descent in David through Boaz and Obed back to Judah to fulfill the proper messianic lineage. When God Himself entered into promise, entered into covenant, and He said that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between His feet until Shiloh comes, and to Him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So in contrast to faithless people, we have faithful God. And if you're here without Him today, talk with myself or somebody in the pew around you about the redemption that we've received in Christ as pictured even here through the kinsman redeemer that you might have hope. Would you pray with me? Our God, we, we do pause for prayer asking first of all for those that would gather with us who do not know the Savior that they would recognize that the Lord, this is the Lord's day. It's a time for decision for you. It's a time to do business with God. Tomorrow's the devil day. It never come. Holding off to get right with you never happens. And as people are mad at the crossroads of life, we recognize that you bring people to this church at your appointed time to hear the gospel. And for those that have responded to your gospel call, you have brought us to this place at this time for such an hour as this to exalt and praise You for Your gospel graces and the bounty that You've poured into our lives through Christ. And as we've learned at, the, at Your foot in this story, might we be, not be those that deceive ourselves by knowing a lot of theological facts, but what, might we be doers of Your Word as we apply it to the events of life and seek to exalt You rather than accuse You. We'll praise You in Christ's matchless name.